We got a man on our show who was for seven years the head coach for UCLA basketball, was also an assistant coach under Jim Herrick, part of that 1995 national championship team, culminated with that title win against Arkansas, where Ed O'Bannon had 30 points and 17 rebounds. Steve Lavin joining us on this episode of Locked on Bruins. Welcome into the show. I'm Brian Fenley. I'm also a national anchor for Fox Sports Radio and a co-host for the Bruin Insider Show. We have such a decorated guest on the program for you today. And I thought it would be fun to go back into Steve Lavin's career at UCLA, play some nostalgia, and then I also have some other fun questions to ask about him, his influences, his thoughts on some of his key players when he was the head coach, such as Baron Davis and Matt Barnes and Jason Capono. So a whole lot of fun to be had. And don't forget to subscribe to the show Let's get to the interview. Well, how lucky we are to have a legend here with UCLA. Steve Lavin, five years as an assistant coach with a basketball team, seven years as the head coach, a very accomplished broadcaster. His verbiage, his wordsmithship, if that's a word, is some of the best you'll find in the broadcasting game. Steve, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Well, Brian, thanks for having me on. And uh, given the altered universe that we've all <laughs> adapted to uh, things are going as well as one could hope for and uh, adhering to the guidelines up here in Northern California and kind of hunkered down uh, do get out on occasion uh, for a walk on paths that are less frequented by others uh, just in terms of trying to uh, stay within those guidelines and uh, the refrigerator is full and, uh, so grateful uh, overall and obviously uh, these are sobering times and so just uh, interesting intersection of both um, inspired by the courage that uh, the first responders demonstrate on a daily basis to save lives, and yet uh, also sobering uh, when you see uh, the number of fatalities uh, that continue to go north. Uh, and hopefully we've uh, leveled off, as they say, but we really don't know. And so... Uh, kind of hoping for the best and, and trying to do our part in terms of uh, the stay-at-home uh, guideline. Sure. I can tell you've got a nice picture of the Golden Gate Bridge behind you. You've also got an iconic shot with UCLA behind you. And I feel, Steve, that with you mentioning that these are unprecedented times, that we can use this opportunity for fans to – Take their mind off what's going on in the real world right now. Some Bruin basketball nostalgia. I think that's always good therapy for people. And I got a question for you, Steve, starting this off. You're well-versed in pop culture. So if your life was a movie, who would you want to depict you as an actor? Wow, good question. Right out of the gate. <laughs> I know, coming strong. I do love film uh, and cinema. Uh, my parents had a great appreciation for it, and I studied uh, film and television in college, and of course, spending the number of years, the decades in Southern California, uh, you naturally gain an appreciation for the history of cinema. Um, but also, I love foreign films as well, uh, Fellini, Cocteau, Truffaut, uh, to name a few great directors. And of course, we've got plenty uh, here in the U.S. in the history of cinema as well. But um, you know, I'd have to think about that and maybe circle back. Okay. In terms of an actor, I mean, I know I have my favorite actors like Robert Duvall, uh, Robert De Niro, uh, Lawrence Olivier, Humphrey Bogart. 
um, you know, to name a few. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman as well, uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Uh, so it would probably be one of those because I have so much respect and admiration for their acting careers. And uh, if uh, I was in a position where I got to choose who would play me, I, I'd probably pick from that pool. So no Will Ferrell, although that, he is a great actor. I, I don't think okay. I could see you as a Will Ferrell. I love you, Steve, but I think that that's a little bit different than, than maybe what you're looking for. But I love the comic relief. Uh, yes. Deadpan, uh, sense of irony, <laughs> and uh, also just a presence that makes you chuckle before yes. you even get into what your favorite film is or uh, where his best performance was as an actor. Um, but uh, he's got a face that makes you break up, start laughing right from the get-go. And uh, he, uh, Anchorman, uh, obviously be near the top of the list. Yeah. Well, you've always depicted that kindness as well and that upbeat attitude. And I'll let, let's go back to when you were an assistant coach and that journey of a season in 1995. And we hear the Ty Sedney shot. We hear Ed O'Bannon. But that year, if you were to encapsulate that year from your vantage point, from your seat in the bench, what was that like? It really was a magic carpet ride. Uh, you couldn't have scripted, uh, you know, a better kind of story or narrative. Uh, you had a team that had come off an embarrassing first-round loss to Tulsa, uh, and it was a good Tulsa team. Uh, Tubby Smith was the coach at the time before moving on to Georgia and Kentucky and his, uh, Minnesota. Uh, number of coaching stops and a, and a future Hall of Fame coach in my book. Um, but we were taken to the woodshed in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Tulsa. And uh, from halftime of that game, uh, Ed O'Bannon really uh, set the tone along with his fellow seniors, uh, the three captains, Tyus Eddie, George Zedek. But it really was Ed O'Bannon. He was uh, the lion of our team or uh, the papa bear. There you go. UCLA group. And um, we went home and really uncertain at that point whether we we're going to be able to keep our jobs. There was a lot of discussion uh, that we were going to be fired uh, following that loss to Tulsa. Um, and we were able to stay on board. And uh, that offseason, uh, the group uh, really practiced and prepared um, with a chip on their shoulder. Uh, there was definitely a resolve, uh, a sense of purpose. And uh, we talked about it openly, that the goal was to win a national title. Uh, the championship final four that year was going to be played in Seattle. Uh, it was in our region of the country. And the team went on to a 32-1 and season. 31-2, uh, and but I think we picked up a win because of Cal uh, going on probation. So officially in the books, it was a 32-1 and season. Uh, so many remarkable aspects. It was the pinnacle for Coach Herrick, um, you know, the top of the mountain. Uh, after coaching on different levels from Morningside High School to being an assistant at UCLA to a run at Pepperdine and then the opportunity to come to UCLA. And he had a, a remarkable eight-year run, uh, eight NCAA tournaments, I think three Pac-10 championships, uh, an Elite Eight, a national championship. I mean, you look at Coach Herrick's numbers, uh, and they're as good as it gets, uh, very elite. So a pinnacle moment for Coach Herrick. And uh, the only championship won at UCLA by a coach other than John Wood, because Coach Wooden had the 10 championships. And then uh, the 11th championship was brought home by Jim Herrick. And those seniors, uh, they were exemplary role models. Uh, there was humility. Um, and yet they were 
tremendous competitors. Uh, they were gentlemen off the court, George Zedek from the Czech Republic, uh, Tyus Edney from Long Beach Poly, and of course, uh, Ed O'Bannon, the National Player of the Year, the Pac-12, or at that time, the Pac-10 Player of the Year. And I think his performance that year was as dominant as any since in terms of from start to finish, the numbers he put up, um, including the championship game, the exclamation point in terms of rebounds and uh, points, and uh, just a dominant uh, performance uh, from start to finish that season by Ed. And that was really emblematic of our team's uh, dominant performance in that season. The great Steve Lavin joining us here on Locked on Bruins. I'm Brian Fenley. You spoke about Ed's performance. How about what he did in the national championship game? I think it was 30 points, 17 rebounds, a couple steals as well. You guys end up winning it all. And then due to some unforeseen circumstances, you take over as a spry 32-year-old. How did that come about? And when you realized that you had gotten the job, what were your initial reactions to that? Well, it's not something you can ever anticipate uh, because, you know, I was a small college basketball player, uh, played two years at San Francisco State University and then transferred to Chapman College at the time. It's now Chapman University. And I transferred because my college coach, Kevin Wilson, uh, who's a mentor of mine, uh, got the job at Chapman. And so I ended up following him and finishing uh, at Chapman University. So I think our enrollment at that time might have been 2,500. And I was a very average basketball player. It wasn't as though I was coming out from under a Dean Smith or a Mike Krzyzewski. Um, so really fortunate um, first to get hired by Gene Cady at Purdue. I was there three years. Then for Jim Herrick to hire me at UCLA and was there for five years. And as you mentioned, when Coach Herrick was dismissed by the university, I signed on initially as just an interim coach. Uh, there was no guarantee whether it would be a week or a month. Uh, they were going to do a national search. And uh, our team caught fire in February, and the interim tag was lifted, and I became the permanent coach uh, for what became seven years. So uh, at UCLA, 12 years total, and I'll be indebted and grateful to that university uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, not only for those assistant years, we were able to win the national title, uh, but even the head coaching years uh, were special uh, in terms of the relationships and, and just being associated with a world-class university like UCLA. And as the decades go by, uh, even a greater appreciation uh, for those 12 years and the things we were able to accomplish and uh, things I learned along the way. Um, and that really set the table for television at ESPN and then the St. John's job and then now back in television at Fox. Uh, those things don't happen if I first don't get the opportunity at Purdue wow. and Big Ten to work under Gene Cady. And that's where I first met Coach Wooden was during my Purdue days because he was a three-time All-American at Purdue and came back frequently. And uh, so we had a unique uh, friendship and a lot of things in common because of my time at Purdue. And then to come to UCLA and also be able to spend time with uh, Coach Wood was one of the things that I treasure most about the time at UCLA, uh, the wisdom, the pearls, the life lessons uh, that I was able to glean from John Wood uh, is something I'm very grateful for. The great Steve Lavin is with us. And Steve, I wanted to ask you this because John Wooden was a guy like many who you reached out to, was super helpful for you throughout your years and a guy who did so much at UCLA. So my, my question for you is, how does a guy who you would reach out to and solicit his advice also be, in a way, 
you felt a lot of pressure to live up to his expectations. So how did you manage that, feeling the pressure from what he did now that you're the head coach, but also going to him for advice? Yeah, I saw it as a positive. I mean, I knew when I became the head coach at UCLA, it wasn't going to be my last job in coaching. Uh, just because if you look at the track record, uh, it's a little like politics. You get a one or two term limit at most uh, when you're the head coach at UCLA. And every coach prior to me, uh, after John Wooden's 27 year run, uh, every coach since, you know, has had a one or a two term limit. And then you give thanks and you move forward. Uh, I saw it as a remarkable opportunity uh, to be able to learn from Coach Wooden, to be able to bounce ideas off of him. And when you're with Coach Wooden, you do more listening than talking. And uh, he would touch on Martin Luther King, uh, Shakespeare, uh, you know, Winston Churchill, wow. Mother Teresa, uh, Abraham Lincoln, his favorite American. Mother Teresa was his favorite uh, human being uh, because of her spirit of giving and her selflessness. Um, so with Coach Wooden, you'd go to him with a basketball question, uh, and he would instead, in a very – a kind way redirect into something that was uh, more important than basketball. Uh, it would be a life lesson. It would be touching on the virtues of the values uh, that really are more important than the outcome of a game uh, or winning a championship or not. And uh, he was a teacher, you know, beyond basketball. Uh, basketball happened to be his classroom and, you know, Polly Pavilion is uh, where he was the teacher. Um, before that, you know, the old men's gym on campus uh, at UCLA. But uh, I think, you know, his legacy was he set such a powerful example, uh, the most powerful form of teaching and parenting and leadership and coaching, for that matter, is leading by example. And that's what Coach Wooden did. He led an exemplary life. And as a result, um, you know, his players uh, benefited. Uh, by that example and by his teachings. And some of them didn't even appreciate his teachings while they were playing for him as much as they did later in life. Oh. And so I was fortunate to have great, you know, teachers in my parents at home. Uh, my dad was a lifelong educator and my mom was a remarkable teacher, uh, but also able to learn from the Gene Cady's, uh, Jim Herrick's, John Wooden's. Um, they were outstanding kind of role models and, and really uh, understood you know, what goes into achievement, what goes into leading a good life. I want to ask you about your dad in just a moment, but going off what you said about the legacy that John Wooden left behind, how did that make it a challenge to take over the job at UCLA? And the question is, what was the hardest part about being UCLA's head coach? Well, I think you understand that, you know, it's an honor to, to have a small part in the history of UCLA's remarkable uh, basketball legacy. And again, back to just being a world-class university uh, beyond athletics, uh, where uh, they're as good as it gets. Uh, research uh, on the campus, uh, you look at the professors, uh, the infrastructure, uh, you know, people working towards finding cures for cancer, um, Nobel Prize and Pulitzer Prize winners uh, that are on the faculty. It's just a unique uh, situation. So you understand um, that when you take the head coaching job at UCLA, uh, it's not about adulation. Uh, it's about trying to sustain uh, a level of excellence 
Uh, and the bar was set pretty high by John Wooden. Yeah. Uh, 10 championships in 12 years and the seven consecutive national championships. And I think there were maybe three or four undefeated seasons, maybe more. Uh, 88 straight wins at one point. Uh, but he also, for 15 years, kind of worked at his craft and didn't have the success until those final 12 years. His first national championship, he was 53 years old. Uh, but he was working his craft and his vocation. And uh, once it all clicked, as he said to me once, Steve, I'm a slow learner. But once I figure it out, I'm pretty good. <laughs> yes. and, uh, with the twinkle in his blue eyes and, and the classic understated Coach Wooden's style, uh, he sure was good those last 12 years. Remarkable. We will circumnavigate back to Coach Lavin right after this. You're listening to Locked On Bruins. March Madness is right around the corner. If you want to win your office pool, you need to stay caught up with all the college basketball action with the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Every Monday, Andy Patton and Isaac Shade recap the biggest stories in college basketball, keep you up to date on the NCAA tournament bubble, and get you ready for the upcoming week of games. From the Big East to the Mountain West and everywhere in between, Andy and Isaac have college hoops covered on the Locked On College Basketball Podcast. Available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. And as you said, you are a product of your role models, John Wooden being another. Your father, Cap, was so integral to your life and leading you down the right path. And yeah, like you said, 43 years as an English teacher, a basketball player as, as well, and a good one in his own right. But what I've read, Steve, is that when you first threw out the idea to your dad that you wanted to go down the realm of coaching, he was a little queasy about it. He was a little resistant. Why was that? Well, his concern was that coaching can be limiting. And because of the natural consuming nature of the coaching business, uh, his concern was it might be a little limiting. And um, he was an English literature uh, philosophy teacher. Um, and also taught poetry and really shared a lot in common with John Wooden. They both had a love of language and etymology in terms of, um, you know, the history of words, uh, the roots of words. And um, so I think he was challenging me to make sure that I really wanted to go in to coaching and was doing it for the right reasons and trying to bring something that would be fresh and original in terms of, uh, how to bring out the best in young people, how to get uh, both individual players and also teams uh, to bring forth their full potential or at least get closer to that full potential. And um, so I'm glad that there was some resistance from my father because it made me really think uh, about uh, why I wanted to get into coaching and uh, kind of fully examine uh, what that possible career path would be like. And uh, he thought that I had some abilities. Of course, he's biased because I'm his son. <laughs> he thought that I had some abilities uh, in writing and in journalism and uh, in broadcasting. As it turns out, the UCLA opportunity really set the table for a career in broadcasting. So they've been complementary, uh, both the coaching and the television work. And now I know when, when I listen to you call games, Steve, your, your vernacular is so diverse and versatile. And I know maybe where you got some of that love of, of the English language from, your father had to be a part of that. Look, I've talked to a lot of your former players, and they ooh and ah over you. We had Josiah Johnson on the other day, and he talked about a story where it was when he was on the team, and it was a game against Oregon State, and there was a ball boy 
that I guess moved the basket and it led to an extra free throw by UCLA. And the kid was disgruntled. He was so upset because he felt like he had lost the game for his team. Josiah comes to your house a couple years later and that kid is at your house. You are so accessible to those around you. Where did that love of, of your players come from? Because everyone I talk to, Steve, shares the same sentiment. Well, I appreciate the kind words. And uh, Josiah is a sweetheart. Um, we're not supposed to have favorites, uh, but he is <laughs> one of my favorites. And as Coach Wooden used to say, uh, I love you all. Uh, there are some that I like more than others, and some are more enjoyable or pleasant uh, to work with <laughs> than others, but I love you all the same. Um, and uh, Josiah really was special, um, and I appreciate those kind words, that story that you reminded me of. But I think it's, you know, emulating uh, the role models in my life. Again, I had remarkable parents. Uh, my mother and father were married for 60 years, and they raised six children on an educator's salary. Uh, my mom was an art history major, and then she went into the workforce after raising us and spent 25 years in human resources uh, with Wells Fargo and Southern Pacific and Catellus and Equitable, these different companies uh, here in San Francisco that she worked for. And uh, she was inspired to work because she knew that two incomes would allow her children uh, to have a better opportunity to go to college. And of course, my father dedicated his entire life to working with young people. And uh, his favorite subject was uh, English. Um, but I think, you know, the people I worked for and that influenced me the most um, were givers. And uh, they had a humility about them. And they didn't take themselves too seriously. They took their work seriously, but they could laugh at themselves. And uh, they understood what's most important is kind of sharing. And if you care about people, uh, you want to share and you want to see them experience things in life uh, that are special. And so having great teachers uh, and not just coaches, uh, there were teachers in grammar school and in high school and in college and counselors. Uh, there are so many people that allow you to get to a certain station in your life. And it's those people uh, that were really bridges uh, throughout my life and, and throughout my career that helped me get to the place I am uh, currently with you. <laughs> well, I'm just so grateful for your time. And to piggyback off what Josiah said, he said, you're the kind of coach that whenever one of his former players is in need, call him right away and he opens up his door to you at the drop of a hat. I mean, that's the kind of guy you are. And I look at a guy like Baron Davis, who I feel like, yeah, he said that one thing in the past, but you guys have really kind of developed that relationship. What was it like? having a guy of that competitiveness on the court with you and seeing him on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, he was a gifted player. I mean, he did things even when we were recruiting him. I remember going to the gym and during the summertime, sometimes you'd be able to see a team play two or three times. And from an entertainment value, uh, put aside – his basketball skills and acumen and, and his knowledge and, and all the things uh, that he could achieve on the floor, uh, but also just stepping back, like watching an artist, watching a dancer, wow. the things he could do with the ball in his hands, the footwork, uh, the shiftiness, uh, like a great running back in football, but with a basketball in his hands. And then the ability to put on the afterburners 
and just blow by uh, defenders to separate uh, from defenders and then elevate, obviously, and play over the top. And he was as gifted a player as I ever coached uh, or recruited. Uh, we had some good ones. Uh, Trevor Ariza was my last recruit at UCLA, but Jerron Rush, uh, Jerome Moiso uh, at St. John's, probably Maurice Harkless uh, was as gifted a player as I coached. Uh, and we had some other remarkable players. And it goes back to that challenge with Coach Wooden. It's why we never like to talk about favorites because uh, there are so many. And players arrive, you know, closer to their potential at different stages. And some players right out of the gate uh, are dominant and are able to impose their will on opponents like a Jason Kidd did at Cal. Uh, and others gradually get better like uh, Earl Watson. Uh, who by his senior year, you look at his numbers in the history of UCLA, he's up there in every category uh, because he was someone that just got a little bit better every year and it led to the 13-year career in the NBA. So, uh, but Baron Davis was as uh, entertaining a player, uh, arguably in the history of UCLA. If you're going to talk about raw talent and ability and the things that he did on the court, um, and imagine if he came back or if he hadn't had that injury, then we would have seen even a more elevated uh, Baron Davis. But I was fortunate to watch him when he was, you know, sophomore, junior in high school. And the things he did uh, on the court were uh, memorable and really mind-blowing. Plenty more with the esteemed former UCLA basketball coach Steve Lavin on the other side. This is Locked on Bruins. Steve Lavin is with us. You can find him on Twitter, Steve Lavin64. I'm Brian Fenley. I'm on Twitter at Brian Fenley. You spoke about, Coach, some of your players. And look, there's no secret how many of your guys made it big in the NBA. I mean, you were great at developing that kind of talent. But you said that there were some players that came in and weren't a big factor until maybe they were upperclassmen. You talked about one. How about a guy like Matt Barnes, who that junior year, you saw a quantum leap from him. Why did that happen or how did that happen? And, and how were you able to play a part in just his total absolute growth th during that time? Yeah, what's interesting, you're talking about players that stayed four years. Matt Barnes, who played maybe 14 years in the NBA. Yeah. He was a four-year player at UCLA. I think Jason Capone played in the NBA 10 years, but he was a UCLA player for four years. Used his entire eligibility. Same with Earl Watson, 13 years in the NBA, but four years at UCLA. Dan Gutzarek, I think, was a decade in the NBA. Yeah. He stayed in school for four years, and uh, there are a number of others. Now, some went early. Baron Davis went after his sophomore year, third pick in the NBA draft. Hard to argue when you're positioned and poised uh, to be the third pick in the draft. Jerome Moiso was the 10th pick after his sophomore year. Jerome Rush went out after his sophomore year and wasn't drafted unfortunately. Uh, so some, it works out when you go early and for others, uh, it hurt them. Um, but overall, uh, the players that stayed four years during my time at UCLA are the ones that had the longest careers in the NBA, which also translates to getting that NBA pension, uh, which yes. is so valuable. And it means you've hit the second and the third contract. When you play 10, 12, 13, 14 years, uh, you're going to have three or four contracts and the contracts tend to go north, uh, just the nature of things with professional sports. And so uh, Matt Barnes was someone that just got better every year. Uh, he was a talented player. Keep in mind, he was an outstanding football player at wow. Del Campo High School in Sacramento. And um, 
and even tried out, was considering uh, under Bob Toledo at UCLA at the time of uh, trying out to be a tight end. And uh, thankfully for us, uh, he committed himself full-time to basketball instead. And as you said, had a breakthrough in that junior year and really a dominant season in his senior year, uh, leading us to a Sweet 16. And uh, he had a lot of Scottie Pippen in his game in terms of the versatility to guard multiple positions. Uh, offensively, uh, he was a handful for opponents because you could take you know, slower, bigger defenders off the dribble to create uh, for himself or his teammates. And then he could back down or post up smaller defenders in the lane. He had a nice jump hook. He had good footwork, uh, nimble feet inside. And I probably, in hindsight, should have redshirted him his freshman or sophomore year. And he would have been a first-team All-American National Player of the Year wow. candidate uh, if we had redshirted him in his freshman or sophomore year. But it's worked out. And it's worked out beyond basketball for him. I mean, he really now is a brand mm -hmm. and a personality um, and someone that's going to have as much success off the court as he did on the court as a basketball player. Uh, his future is so bright. Well, following your footsteps and what you're doing as a broadcaster and certainly a part of the game as well as a coach and player, do you have a funny story about Jason Capono? You know, more than one story. Um, I mean, he was a player that from the minute he stepped on the court uh, wearing those headbands, uh, <laughs> he created a following. Uh, so there was some marketing genius, uh, some brand awareness, and uh, – he just had a sweet stroke. I mean, he teed it up and uh, had range. And you think about the history of UCLA. Reggie Miller had a remarkable range. Uh, Tracy Murray, I mean, could shoot it from deep. Uh, Aaron Aflalo, uh, Billy Knight. Um, but, you know, I'd say uh, his range is uh, as impressive as any when you look at uh, three-point shooting marksmanship. And I think – uh, Jason Capono is still in the record books, uh, near the top when it comes to three-point shooting, both in single season and career. Um, and uh, it speaks to the time he put into shooting. I mean, he really mastered his shooting stroke, and that's because the hours, you know, thousands of hours, uh, the 10,000-hour rule would probably apply. Sure. Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, uh, because he lived in the gym and worked on that shooting stroke, and as a result, another four-year player, uh, 10 years, I'm not mistaken, in the NBA, a national champion, uh, an NBA championship with Miami, uh, with Pat Riley and company. So, and he met his wife when he was at UCLA. Um, so uh, their family really uh, began with him stepping on campus and uh, made the most of his NBA career too, in terms of the NBA three-point shooting contest. I think he won at least one, maybe two. Uh, so it worked out well for Jason. Uh, it was a good marriage, you know, his talent with UCLA being a world-class university. That it was. He was, as a kid, I was just so fond of him and trying to emulate him growing up, you know, playing peewee ball and even, yeah, exactly. Just the nonstop, just stroking it, stroking it, stroking it. So how has your broadcasting career made you a better coach? Hmm. Good question. Well, I think number one is we're so myopic and as we should be as a coach, we're focused just on our program, the opponents we're going to play, uh, the recruits that we're in pursuit of uh, broadcasting in many ways is the equivalent of a sabbatical for a professor. You're able to step away, 
Uh, you get a wider angle lens to look at the game. Um, and you're traveling the country. So you're watching other programs, other coaches at work, and you're taking notes. You're increasing your own basketball acumen, uh, whether it's, you know, adjusting to certain rule changes, uh, the new trends in the game, uh, better ways to try and create basketball habits in terms of the drill work that you do in practice, um, how to take advantage of your assistant coaches. So uh, there's so many aspects or elements because the game is always evolving and changing and the best coaches are able to adjust from decade to decade. That's what made John Wooden so remarkable. He was coaching, you know, in the 1940s um, and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. So that's parts of the four decades. Coach Wooden started in Kentucky uh, at Dayton High School as an English teacher and a coach and then South Bend Central High School in Indiana. Uh, then he was at Indiana State. Uh, there was a time to serve for our country in the Navy uh, in the middle of that run. And Indiana State was Division II at that time, uh, not the Larry Bird Sycamores yeah. in Indiana State. Uh, and then he gets the break and comes to UCLA. And for 15 years, um, he works at his craft. And then they have that breakthrough season uh, with the full court press, no one taller than six foot five. And that's <laughs> the first championship, small ball. Before there was the Golden State Warriors small ball. Uh, UCLA was doing it in the 60s. And so eventually Kareem, Polly Pavilion, Bill Walton, Marcus Johnson, Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe. Uh, Walt Hazard was on that very first team as well uh, when you look at the first championship and part of that small ball approach using the press and playing at pace and wearing opponents down because of their great physical conditioning. But they also had a mental conditioning. Uh, they were tough mentally and physically. And that became kind of the blueprint or the template uh, for John Wooden's success. Uh, but he learned as he went along, uh, like a number of older coaches, uh, those early days are what really informed the dominant run. And uh, we don't see that today in college basketball. Uh, if you struggle, as Coach Wooden did during her, his first 15 years, he wouldn't have been the coach to win 10 of 12 uh, and seven in a row. And, uh, and that's usually the case. You look at Mike Krzyzewski, uh, there was a period where he was on the rocks uh, at Duke, but uh, Tom Butters, the athletic director, stayed with him, and the rest is history. He's arguably uh, the second greatest coach uh, next to John Wood. And there's others, sure. Dean Smith, Pete Newell, uh, you know, a lot of great coaches. But uh, John Wood would have to be near the top, as is uh, Mike Krzyzewski. We're having some fun with Steve Lavin, some Bruin basketball nostalgia. You can follow Steve on Twitter, Steve Lavin 64 a great one to follow. I'm Brian Fenley. And Steve, as, as accomplished as you are now as a broadcaster, I'm sure as, as someone who has that love for coaching, would you ever, if the opportunity presents itself in the right format, would you ever want to maybe coach again? You know, Absolutely. I, yeah. Yes. It's about the right fit, sure. and you have to be careful strategic, mindful in terms of returning to coaching uh, just for the sake of returning to coaching. Uh, because the position I have with Fox Sports, uh, I really value. Yes. And uh, there's security, there's longevity. I'm working with people uh, that I really enjoy. And I'm getting to you know, be a part of our coverage of college basketball. Uh, and then during the NCAA tournament, I get to work with Turner and CBS uh, to cover March Madness. And so uh, I'm grateful 
and some of the things I learned from Coach Wood and the life lessons um, is the grass isn't always greener. Sure. And uh, you have to be uh, thoughtful uh, in your decision making and really use good critical thinking uh, when you make judgments or choices uh, on your career path. And so uh, I thought that I was going to stay in broadcasting uh, when I was with ABC and ESPN for seven years between UCLA and St. John's. I was uh, looking at the vocation of broadcasting as something that might take me to the finish line of my working life. And then St. John's came knocking and uh, the Big East, Madison Square Garden, their history, uh, the tradition of that university and uh, New York City. Uh, I couldn't turn that down. Uh, so if the right fit came along, it doesn't have to be big. Um, sure. I've been at Purdue. I've been at UCLA. I've been uh, at St. John's, worked in the top conferences in the country. It's really more about fit and the people you're working with and the vision, the values. Uh, are they in alignment uh, with one another? Is there a real good marriage there? And um, that's what we had at St. John's. Um, and it's why we had success. And uh, they wanted to go in a different direction at the end of my five years there. Uh, we had a new president and uh, he wanted to hire Chris Mullen, understandably a Hall of Famer, maybe the most famous alum in the history of St. John's and uh, one of the greatest players to ever play this game. And uh, so the president uh, went with Chris Mullen and um, that's what led to me getting back into television. But absolutely, I would consider a return to coaching. I'd be intrigued uh, if it was the right fit because uh, I do miss the competition. I miss the teaching, the coaching, the mentoring on a daily basis. I miss working on a college campus. Uh, my father worked uh, in higher education as an English teacher, so I grew up on college campuses. And uh, there's something stimulating and intoxicating <laughs> about working on a campus, um, sure. about higher education, and uh, with other movers and shakers and, and uh, people that share kind of a common interest in working with young people and trying to help uh, your students uh, on a positive path or trajectory uh, for life beyond basketball or life beyond uh, a college experience. Steve, you had a lot of success at UCLA from an Elite Eight performance, a lot of Sweet 16s. You've had this time, and we, we all are during this stoppage in sports, to give us a chance to, to reflect. And we certainly wish we were not in this position. We wish there were sports going on. We wish we were listening to you calling college basketball games. But because we've had this extra time, it's given us a moment to kind of reflect on our life and where we stand. And, and my question to you is, when you look back at the seven years as the head coach for UCLA, among all the success that you had, Where's one sequence or one play that if you would have scripted it differently, you would have done that? Looking back now, obviously it's easy to look back now and say, man, I wish I did it that way. But is there a, se a sequence or a moment where you're like, you know what, looking back, I've learned from it and I should have done it that way instead? There are so many. I mean, we'd have to have three more <laughs> sessions. Well, we can do that down the road. Topic. We'll do that. that. That's a tease for the next one. Yeah. yeah make it a weekly hit. Yes. <laughs> um, it's really more how life experience, you know, informs a different perspective. And for instance, at 32 years old, having never been a head coach and thrust into that position by the university on an interim basis, and then uh, thanks to Coach Wooden, eventually a permanent basis, but um, naturally uh, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, as you continue to live life, um, you know, I was a different coach 
at 45 years old when I took over at St. John's than I was as a 32-year-old coach, a neophyte, uh, at UCLA. And it's interesting how, you know, being fired, um, you know, working for different companies. Uh, I learned things at Purdue under Gene Cady. I learned other things under Jim Herrick at UCLA, um, public universities. I learned something else working at a Catholic university uh, at St. John's, working for ABC and ESPN, the Disney Corporation, uh, informed a certain perspective, as has Fox and CBS and Turner and the Pac-12 networks. And so you're always taking notes. Um, I'm someone that was raised in a family uh, that had parents who were eternal learners. And the mentors I had uh, had this insatiable appetite to learn and to grow and keep refining and improving and enhancing uh, your teaching methods, your broadcasting methods. Um, and that's what it's all about. We have our first breath when we're born. We have our last breath when we die. And it's what we learn in between uh, that really is our legacy and what matters most. And so there are so many elements. Having cancer, uh, going through that experience of missing a full season at St. John's with cancer, that informs a different perspective in terms of how fragile life is, uh, compassion uh, for others who have gone through cancer or uh, loved ones who uh, lose a father or a child um, because of this dreaded disease that we're trying to eradicate, uh, cancer. So uh, you bring all of that forward, uh, losing my mother and father uh, these last couple of years, uh, that informs a different perspective. Uh, when you begin to lose loved ones in your life. So I think more than any one element or aspect, you know, naturally I remember, hey, we should have gone zone on that last possession. Sure. You know, or I should have had someone else in the game. And you remember every single game or had a different uh, attack against a zone defense or something in terms of uh, when I could have called a timeout or not called a timeout. And I think every coach reviews and goes through that's um, – what the coaching business is about, just like parenting, you know, your first child, your third child, right. Uh, you're raising a different child in a different manner when it's the third or fourth or fifth or sixth child in my parents case, sure. than you are with the first child. And uh, so life informs and life experience informs. And a lot of times it's the hardship and the adversity that informs in the most profound or powerful way. And that's why I'm so grateful uh, for the ebb and the flow of this 32 year run, this love affair, with basketball and uh, consider myself very fortunate to have been able to both broadcast at the highest levels and coach at the highest levels of college basketball. And I can't wait for that signed copy of that book documenting those 32 years. I hope I, I get access to that. Hey, I was wondering, are we going to get a red hour back moment here? Is that, is that cigar still, uh, still working it? Or I, you... do, I do have my cigar. I don't think it's, it's probably gone out by now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's in a Fuente. Uh, there you go. I love it. One of my vices. Uh, <laughs> I still have a few vices. and The Red Auerbach Cigar. I was tempted to smoke one in my last game in Poly Pavilion, but I didn't yeah. want to take them the wrong way. And in California and on the UC you know, campus, it, it wouldn't have been appropriate. But I was tempted. Red <laughs> tempted. You heard it here first. The great Steve Lavin. You can find him on Twitter at SteveLavin64 to check out all of his exploits, all of his good deeds in the – coaching ranks the broadcasting ranks and we're so grateful to have you steve let's do this again sometime and hope you and your family can stay safe during this time and hopefully the the worst is behind us and that we can get back to some level of normalcy and basketball be sooner rather than later yeah i couldn't have said it better myself brian and thank you for 
thinking of me and, of and having me on this show. I enjoyed it. And uh, good luck to you. And let's stay in touch and, and be safe and, and stay home. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.